preaching of God's Word is in Psalm 119, and particularly at verse 68. Psalm 119, and there at verse 68. We've read the uh, particular portion surrounding this, as well as the other sections of this psalm that surround it. So here now, that one verse, Psalm 119 and verse 68. Thou art good, and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. As we come to this passage, we come doubtlessly with the firm persuasion, as the psalmist here testifies, that God is good. And we must confess we don't fully comprehend all of what is conveyed by that simple assertion that God is good. What we do know is indeed most blessed to us. We know of His mercies. We know of His grace. We know of His long-suffering. We know something of His goodness. And we have, by His grace, as the psalmist elsewhere exhorts, tasted and seen that God is good. And this gives us a spiritual satisfaction. When we have food that is good, our bodies benefit when we have instruction from one who is good, our everlasting souls are blessed. Now, as each of us would doubtlessly say that God is good, we are most ready to acknowledge that when, as we often say, things are going well for us. Our health is good, our friendships are strong, our relationships are abounding, our families are prospering, our finances are stable, and the church is without controversy. And indeed, we're right to ascribe these things to God's goodness. There's nothing to be corrected about that. When things are going in pleasant ways to us, we are to trace it back to the fountain, even God Himself, which has done well unto us. Whereas, though, we're often ready to acknowledge that God is good when things are going well, Here we see one acknowledging God's goodness while he's surrounded, perhaps it would seem even engulfed, by affliction. Notice this one portion of Psalm 119 from 65 to 72. He speaks of verse 67 of having been afflicted before I was afflicted. So he's acknowledging an affliction has come. Prior to the affliction... He had wandered. He had gone astray. It doesn't say to what extent. It doesn't say to how extreme. But it does tell us that before the affliction came, he had gone astray. Perhaps there's something, as was mentioned in verse 59, that he had thought on his ways and turned his feet unto God's testimonies. So notice there's affliction in this portion. But also notice, immediately following this assertion and this prayer, there in verse 69, there's the acknowledgement that the proud have forged a lie against me. And the acknowledgement that their heart is as fat as grease. And verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. There's something of an ongoing aspect to that construction. It's not just that I had been afflicted, but that I have been. And there's still something of the soreness 
of the affliction going on. And this is what causes us to see the beauty of this testimony. Thou art good and doest good, even in affliction, even in trials, even in sorrows, even in pain. Because I know you're good, I know that all that you're doing is good. But as mentioned in the reading of this section, there is cultivated by God's grace something of a gracious magnetism. And so he's tasted, he's seen that God is good. And what is it that he experiences? He's drawn to want to know more of this God who is good. He wants to know God's will. He wants to know God's way. He wants to know God. This is common in natural things. If we're walking down perhaps a road and we're a park and we catch a glimmer, a faint little glimmer of a color that is there different than the green that's all around us. We stop and what do we do? Well, we look at the color. It's beautiful. has a little hint of something. And so we then start to walk toward it. We go near it. We're wanting to see more of it. We go to the gardens and we get a faintest whiff of something sweet and pleasant. What do we do? We stoop over. We cup the blossom perhaps ever so gently and bend our nose more closely to to bring in more of that which we deem as good simply in passing ways to our senses. Well, what's true naturally is true spiritually. That when we get a glimpse of God's goodness, the believer says, oh, you're good. And what is it that we want? We want to know more of this God. We want to know more of His ways. We're asking Him to teach us. What we see in this passage, and certainly confirmed many other places in the Scriptures, is that the believer, persuaded of God's goodness, longs to learn from this good God. He longs for it. He desires it. He seeks it. He prays for it. And so this whole Psalm 119 is full of this very idea again and again. There's the acknowledgement of God's goodness, of His holiness, of His righteousness, of His uh, good ways. And it's coupled with a prayer that we indeed would be further instructed. And so we wish to consider this desire in the believer's heart by God's grace. Firstly, by considering the goodness of God. And secondly, by considering the learning that comes from God. The goodness of God and the learning from God. So as to the first, consider the goodness of God. Now we have to admit from the outset there's no possible way for us here to do a full treatment of the goodness of God. And it's a beautiful expression, so simple, so concise, so direct. Thou art good. If you have a Bible that does so, you'll notice that that verb that connects these two words, thou and good, is supplied. In the Hebrew, it's even more direct. Thou good. It's so forceful. It's so full. It's an immediate, as it were, conveyance of one's great delight. Oh, this is good. That. Good. You. Good. There's almost the inability to put all the words together. The idea, of course, 
is that in looking upon God as He's revealed Himself to us, even in the midst of affliction, the believer is persuaded that God is good. In fact, that God is goodness itself, that there's no knowledge of goodness outside of God. This is, of course, what Christ says when one comes and says, Good Master. Christ says, Why do you call me good? Don't you know that there's only one who is good, even God? Now, of course, he's not denying to be God or to be good, but he's forcing some reflection upon that one who comes with a question. And it's worthy of our questioning as well, this thought, this consideration. We speak of goodness in this world. We speak of good people. We speak of good deals. We speak of good flavors. And yet, if we're honest and more precise, we have to speak of it by degrees. We have to speak of it relatively. The Scriptures tell us that love, charity, covers a multitude of sins. Anytime we look even at a brother or sister and say, there's a good Christian, we have to admit, and they would admit, that that's an imperfect statement. Because even within each of us, there's something still that remains this side of heaven that isn't good. And even if we look at the saints in heaven who no longer have the touch of sin within them, and we say they're good, yet it's not perfectly so, because their goodness has been given to them. It's something provided to them. It's something that isn't necessarily theirs by their own essence. It's something that God has granted to them. But when we look at God, it's different. Because God has this goodness of Himself. It is synonymous with God. It is God. God is good. He's never not been good. He's never had even the faintest marring upon His character that would ever lead us to say that God is anything but good. He is completely without its opposite. Any evil inclination. Oh, brethren, does it not burden us at times when we find the inclination of our hearts unto that which is evil. We're praying as we live, O Lord, purify my thoughts, purify my speech, and God be praised that He answers that prayer and He makes us increasingly to be sanctified. And yet it's a great burden to us upon those discoveries where we see, oh, it's imperfect still. The thoughts I've had toward this one on the road, the thoughts I've had toward that brother or sister who differs from me, the thoughts I've had toward my spouse, my children, my parents, my friends, we can discover so regularly, can't we, that there's still something that is not good in us. Paul wrestled with this in Romans 7. When he says, oh, I see this war at work in my members. The Spirit's at work, praise God, and yet my flesh is still at work as well. And so the Spirit is desiring contrary to the flesh, namely for that which is good, but that which remains of my sin is desiring contrary to the Spirit. And what does Paul say? Oh, who will deliver me? 
from the body of this death. But brethren, consider this. There is no such aspect of evil in God. There's not even a struggle with it. There's not even a temptation for it. We're told in the Scriptures that God neither tempts anyone with evil, nor, hear this language, can He be tempted with evil. It is beyond Him. We speak of Jesus Christ as sinless, and to be more precise, we can say this, He is impeccable. He has no ability, never had any ability, to sin. Such is the purity of His person. And this gives us just a glimpse of it, the brightness of His goodness. But what is His goodness that He has in perfection? Well, it's been referenced several times of late, but it's worthy of seeing this connection. You remember that Moses cries out to God and says, God, show me your glory. We ought to pay attention to what God says to him when Moses says, show me your glory. Notice in Exodus 33, at verse 18, he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. What does God say in verse 19? He said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. What God is saying in essence is this, Moses, you ask for what you can't handle. To see my glory? Moses, if I were to display all that I am, you'd be consumed as in a moment. Children, you think of this. You take a loose hair over the lightest flame, and what happens? It burns up almost instantaneously. It's gone. There's a picture of that. What would happen if you took a piece of hair and you drew near the sun with greater heat than a candle could ever think to produce? Well, you wouldn't even get that near. And not only would the hair, but you yourself would be consumed. Well, brethren, what is a mortal, by the way, who has sinned in its ability to comprehend and take in the glory of God? We bless God's name that one day being glorified by God's grace with a mediator before us will better discern the glory of God But notice, Moses is not just passed by. Verse 22, It shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. What are those back parts? Notice, Verse 5 of the next chapter, the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him. So there's the passing by of which he spoke. And now what does he do? He proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, and so on. He's proclaiming his goodness. 
He's saying, Moses, this is what you must know. This is what you can start to taste. This is what you, by my grace, are able to take in to some extent. His grace, His mercy, His long-suffering, His forgiving of sins, His covenant faithfulness. Brethren, this is the Lord's goodness. He's good in Himself. This is what God is. If you were asked, what are you? You say, well, I'm a human being. You say, okay, but tell me some of your attributes. We know what the world would say of themselves. They say, well, I'm a pretty good person. This comes up all the time. I'm a pretty good person. Pretty good. Pretty good according to whose standards? Pretty good according to the present world standards? Well, that world standards doesn't make up much by way of goodness. Pretty good by virtue of your neighbor? Well, perhaps, arguably so. But when we come face to face with goodness compared to God, we would be compelled as with those before us in seeing the display of something of that glory and power to fall down as Peter did and say, Depart from me, for I am a wicked man. I'm not good. I'm selfish. How many of our arguments are founded on that selfish principle in us. Oh, we love to point the finger at the other and say it's their fault. If they hadn't done, if you hadn't done, then this wouldn't have happened. But the reality is, if we were full of goodness, we would be those who seek peace and ensue it, as the Scriptures say. But not only is God good in Himself, God is good in His works. Notice, as the psalmist says, Thou art good and doest good. The context is even more instructive. He does good even when he brings trials. Brethren, who is there in this room that is unfamiliar with trials? Each of us has trials that take place. Some are weaker, some are heavier, some are shorter, some are longer. But each of us has trials. And let's be honest, when the trial first begins, if not our statement, at least our temptation is to question how can God be good and bring these things to pass? Well, the psalmist is preceded by afflictions, is in affliction, and yet here he's confessing that God is doing good. In fact, that all he does is good. We sang from Psalm 145 and we're reminded that God's goodness is over all His works. It's not just toward the believer. It's not just toward the elect. The Scriptures affirm without hesitation that God is good toward all of His creation. So we see, verse 9, the Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all His works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. And it goes on to speak of how it is, verse 15, the eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. And how it is that he continues to hold forth these things. To all creation, to the beasts of the field, to the birds of the air, to the fish of the sea. Consider how we read in Matthew chapter 5 this truth particularly related to one's enemies. And you'll see the astounding goodness of God, particularly we compare it to ourselves. 
in Matthew chapter 5, notice when Christ is saying, you've heard, verse 43, that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Notice what he's saying. I'm exhorting you unto the likeness of your Father in heaven. This is what your Father's like. He's not just good to His children. He's good to His very enemies. In fact, this is what only heightens their judgment. That they turn His goodness, corrupt His goodness, His gifts, His kindness, and they pervert it unto themselves. This is why Paul says in Romans, you know, the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, neither Christ nor Paul is speaking of the secret decree, but is speaking of the ordering of things and the Lord's goodness in them. So the Father maketh His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Think of this, wicked men who have blasphemed God's name today. And by the way, lest we think that blasphemy is as it were a little sin because of our culture's light thoughts of God, blasphemy is particularly stated in God. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Listen to this statement. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Blasphemy Howsoever long God bears with it is a sin that God marks in particular and will bring that into an account most clearly. And so when we consider this point that the blasphemer tonight will sit down, eat a satisfying meal, have comfort from the miseries of this life, lie down, rest, wake up, have common kindnesses to them in the morning, we ought to be astounded at the kindness of God. Now, God may be ordering that in His perfect wisdom unto their further judgment, but that's not because it's not goodness. It's because it is goodness. God is showing goodness. And on the last day, He won't say to them, well, I wasn't good to you, and therefore your sin, whatever... You know, say, I was good to you, and you've sinned all the worse. Your sin is compounded by my goodness. Well, if this is true of all men, is it not all the truer of his people? Because he does just give his common goodnesses to his people, he gives his saving goodness to his people. He disposes to them not just the common goodness that is shown over all of His works, but He gives that which is His special and saving grace unto His chosen ones, and even orders their afflictions to their sanctifying benefit and their enlargement of heart and ultimately to their good and to His glory. Brethren, what is there in God but what is good? And what is there in God's works, but what is good? We ought to humble ourselves when we
feel that temptation to rise up and say against God, you know, I'm not sure that this is testifying clearly of your goodness. No, God is good, and God always does good. Brethren, we're grateful, aren't we, that he's teaching us this. He deals with us little by little. He brings us from our death to life, and upon the initiation of life, from our immaturity gradually more to our maturity. Some have a quicker, as it were, advance in that. Some have a slower. But by God's grace, he's making us to see his goodness more and more. Well, secondly then, notice the learning that is from God. It is when the soul sees this and acknowledges it and tastes it that the soul wants to know more of this good God. And so the psalmist acknowledging, Thou art good and doest good, says, Teach me thy statutes. Notice that this is the believer's desire. The believer doesn't have to be, as it were, constrained you know, against his will because God is working within him to desire to know these things. Some people pervert the teaching of the new covenant you find, say, in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Hebrews chapter 8 or 10. And they say, well, God says in the new covenant, they'll, they'll not need to be instructed by others because they'll all be taught of God. Well, he's speaking there first by degree, that there's a greater spiritual effusion. The Spirit is given with power at Pentecost and abides and remains in the church. But he's also confirming how God's people have always learned by God teaching them. And he uses his appointed means. Who is it that sends pastors and teachers? It's not the church. It's not a man. It's Christ. Christ ascends up on high and he provides teachers in the church. And who is it that's teaching? Well, instrumentally, the pastor perhaps is teaching. But as Paul says on several occasions, Christ has been heard by you. You've heard Christ. Christ teaches through those shepherds he has given. And so the believer's desire is to be taught of God. It's to be one who is learning from God. This is a mark of grace. Now, sometimes that mark is more abundantly clear. Sometimes it's less so. But if there's grace, this will be a desire that's there. I want to know more of this God. For a moment, it's worthy to ask, do you discern that desire to learn more of this God who is good? And by the way, not because of the pressure of a church, not because of the pressure of a spouse, not because of the pressure of morality even, but because of having seen that God is good. See, that's different. A parent can rightly exercise their authority and, as it were, lovingly put pressure upon their children to do things that are right. A school can do this. A church can do this. A spouse can do this. A Christian friend can do this. So sometimes we have things where we say, hey, would you study this book of the Bible with me? And necessarily, there's some sense, not mean or mean-spirited, but there's some sense of pressure in that relationship. But notice here, it's an expression of the desire 
having seen the goodness of God. Oh, look at this good God. I want to know more of his way. That's the question before you right now. Do you have that desire to learn of God? Not just because of how it will make you look in the eyes of others. Not just because it will give you the ability to say to others, yes, I'm learning. But because there's a longing within your soul to learn of the Lord. Brethren, we're tremendously grateful that the Lord is pleased to give us this desire. The believer desires to learn of God. This is why true Christianity has always been one that has been instructed and instructing. It's not just out of constraint and force, though there is the role of discipline to be administered to erring and negligent Uh, disciples and members of the covenant, but it's because uh, regenerate ministry loves God's word and wants to make God's word known. A regenerate people loves God's word and wants to receive that word. This is the desire of believers, men and women, children and adults, to desire to be taught of God. Teach me thy statutes. But notice the Lord's provision. What is he given to teach us? Well, particularly here, one of the synonyms that regularly appears, and you can see it, in fact, throughout this portion, verse 65, thy word, verse 66, thy commandments, again, verse 67, thy word, here, verse 68, thy statutes, elsewhere, you'll have testimonies and judgments and commandments and so on. It's a particular word that is in the domain of commandments. So there's subtle distinction between statutes and commandments, but they're essentially one and the same thing. They come with a commanding force. The Lord has provided His commandments to teach His people. This is a regular assertion throughout the Scriptures Thy law is good. And it's not just a regular assertion in the Old Testament. It's the very statement of the Apostle Paul when he says the law of God is good and just and holy. And what is it that's written on the heart of the believer? It's the Lord's law. It's His commandments. It's His statutes. But why is it that the Lord gives us His law? Why is it that His commandments instruct us? Why is it that the law is good and the desire of the believer is to learn them? Because the law is a reflection of the holiness of God Himself. The law itself is not founded upon, as it were, the vain circumstances of this world. It's founded upon the nature of God and His will. So, for instance, there's no such universe that can be imagined where there would not be the commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And you say, why? Why is there no ability to find a universe, to think up a universe? Because the true God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the only God. And as the only God, He's the only one worthy of our obedience, faith, submission, loyalty, devotion, and so on. There's no universe that any of us could think up 
with the true God who is, where it would be permissible for us to take his name in vain. And as he's made the universe, there's no universe as it stands where we can think that it would be permissible for us not to honor our authority, because it's right. It's a reflection of God himself and God's will and the order of things as he's created it. So it's a little reflection of God himself. So when he writes his law upon our hearts, he's actually, as it were, writing something of himself upon our hearts. And so Peter puts it quite simply, borrowing from the Old Testament, when he says, Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. Elsewhere we're told, both in the Old Testament by Christ and quoted by Paul, that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the second commandment, not the second of the Ten Commandments, but the second in in priority and the summary of God's law. And love is the fulfilling of the law. We're told the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The law of God is the uh, display of what is good, what is right, what is holy. And when we submit to learning the commandments of God, we're learning something more about God's ways, which is good. Think of it this way. What in God's law commands us to anything that is evil? Find something. Try to find something where God commands us anything that is evil. And the answer is, well, it's impossible. Nothing in God's law is evil. The law commands what is good. And so if we honor our father and our mother, we're going to be honoring authority over us, not just our immediate mom and dad, but others who bear authority. And if we're to honor them and we have authority, we're to be honorable people who bear that authority. It starts to touch on all of society, as it were. The Lord gives us these means of His commandments to teach us the way that is good. Now, the law doesn't make us good. The law doesn't change us to be good. This is Paul's point in his treatment of this in Romans 6, 7, and 8. The law doesn't have power in and of itself. But that's why the psalmist is going to God and saying to Him, teach me, which includes not just the fill my mind with the precepts, the statutes, the commandments, but actually instruct me, make me to know this, give me all that is needed so that I can walk in this way, which of course demands grace. So God provides us instruction by means. So in other words, we ought not to think, well, I'm going to grow in holiness, I'm going to grow in the knowledge of God just by sitting back, lifting up my feet, and sort of going with the current. It's not the case. We give diligence to reading God's Word. We give diligence to listening to God's Word, to meditating upon God's Word, to thinking through the impact and the applications of God's Word. But the question we can ask is, why? Because hypocrites will do the same and will often outdo believers in their approach to study and other such things. What is the difference between the hypocrite and the true believer? Here's the difference. The true believer is drawn to it 
out of love. There's a delight in it. The hypocrite is constrained to do it out of self-righteousness. That's a world of difference. But notice, thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Notice verse 72. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Notice in verse 69, I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. It's speaking of a comprehensive desire and delight in the instruction of God. Whereas the hypocrite only wants the outward honor and dignity of being considered righteous. This is Christ's point with many of the Pharisees. You know, you pray long prayers, you seek out these things that men may say, there goes a religious person. And he says, look, you have your reward. People will think that. You've got it. But that's no congratulations. The true believer is not interested in men praising him. In fact, the true believer has this sense of, I don't want to be praised. That even when we are going about doing our good works before others, it's not so others could come to us and say, hey, that was a great job. But it's as Christ said, we do so that our Father in heaven would be praised. Our whole orientation is toward God. We're learning when we want to learn because of God. And we want to live for God. The hypocrite has no desire of those things. The hypocrite wants the outward honor, the outward dignity, the outward esteem of men. The hypocrite wants to be deemed right. The hypocrite wants to be credited with insight. The hypocrite wants to judge others. The hypocrite wants to point out faults. But the believer longs to know this goodness in fellowship with God who is good. This is the fruit of grace. The true learning from the good God who is, is by God's grace. I love thy law. Not just, I know it's right, I know it's good, i got to figure it out, I'm going to obey it. But oh, there's a compulsion of grace within the believer saying, I've seen, I've tasted, I've known God is good, and now I want to walk with this God who is good. So as God teaches, He transforms. Well, brethren, as we close, a few points of application. First, there's something here for your instruction. The context is extremely challenging and helpful. When the Lord afflicts His people, it is a lesson to teach us. Affliction that comes is like the bell at the start of a class. And God says, sit down, I'm going to teach you now. Now, in classes, we know what this is. In school, you know what students said. Every class, I just love to sit down and be instructed. No. However, each of us will have had some teacher that was truly amazing. The way they could teach, the way they loved, we were convinced and persuaded of their care for us. They sought us out after class. They pursued us. They said, hey, I saw you struggling with that. How can I help you? And they showed something, a relative, yes, a low degree perhaps, yes, but something of goodness. And what did it do? 
it drew us to them. We looked forward to that class. Whatever else our weaknesses were, we looked forward to coming to that class and learning of that teacher. Well, brethren, here is the teacher and the one who is only good. The ringing of the bell by affliction is the guarantee to the Christian of a lesson of grace and help. Far too often it takes us time in the trial itself to figure this out. God has something for me in the trial. God has something for me to see of Him in the trial. Often He takes away by the trial a lesser good in order to fill our hands with the greater good, even Himself, that we would come to know Him better. There are people in this room, each of us to one extent or another, who know something of loss, who know something of heartache, some more, some less, but to whatever extent the believer is able to say, though he's taken that away, yet he has supplied greater knowledge of himself, even of himself who is most good. Brethren, it doesn't make us hear the bell of affliction and say, great, bring it on. But it does make us hear that bell of affliction and say, thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. It's a beautiful book, titles, uh, Learning with Christ in the School of Affliction. Brethren, there's much to take up in such a thought. If the Lord has brought a season of affliction upon you, here is something to own secretly in prayer, publicly in worship, and publicly in praise in the face of others. The Lord is good. And though I don't see it all right now, I know this. He does good and is doing good. As Paul says, He works all things together for the good of those that love Him or the called according to His purpose. And brethren, this is the thing that is needed if ever we're going to come near to Him to learn of Him. Because if we think He has the rod with vengeance and hatred toward us and is disposed evilly toward us, we might be able to force ourselves out of some austerity to sit beneath Him. But we won't sit there as a willing learner to say, teach me. The Scriptures open this up that even the rod of affliction is motivated by love. God comes to us in love. He comes as one good to us. He doesn't come as the abusive father. He comes as the loving father which disciplines an erring child in order to direct them in better ways. And so notice, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. That's good. That is the work of a good God. That he sobers us. That he brings us out of the compromise and the nonsense of this world to put us on the good way of walking in fellowship with the good God. Secondly, there's reproof to any who would not learn from God. Surely there's a reproof to those who would blaspheme God. Oh, if God's good, why would He? If God's good, He should do this. Oh, brethren, let's remember what we are and let's remember what God is. God is good. 
and deserves to be credited and praised at all times. Job had that, yes, weakly at times, but other times strongly when he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the confession of one who knows God is good. Though he comes at me, yet I know he's good and I'll trust him. Abraham trusted him that he was good. And so he brought his son to the altar, trusting God. You see, if we won't learn from God, it's actually a sign of unbelief. Oh, how we love to muddy the waters of Scripture. Well, I've got this question and that question. Oh, I see that point, but what about these things and those things? And through this throwing up of all the dust of our own hearts, we try to make impure the pure Word of God. Brethren, the fault is not with the Scriptures. The fault is with unbelieving and darkened minds. Here's the problem. Men love darkness rather than light. They love sin rather than truth. That's why they won't come. And brethren, if we hesitate to learn of God, it's a testimony of something still of sin remaining within us. Finally, here is our exhortation to start with the goodness of God, to set it before us, to take this verse even and start our reading of God's Word with this testimony, Thou art good. Thou doest good. Teach me Thy statutes. Don't just give me the words, but impact my soul. Transform me with confidence of His goodness. Take up His Word. Study His law. Know this that His law will never command you what is wrong, what is bad, what is evil. His law will only command you what is good and right and needed. As you so study, may you know something of the transformation of His grace, that His goodness would be more reflected in you. Would you stand with me for prayer?